Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Cold-blooded. An adjective which describes two types of beings. The first is a reptile, whose body temperature mirrors its environment, which is regulated by the cooling or warming of its blood, and with a slow metabolism, needs only feed sporadically on its prey. It is natural, essential, and its mode of hunting is akin to any other creature in nature's kingdom. The second is a human, who is callous, ruthless, and cruel, and is a warm-blooded beast who shouldn't need to hunt or feast. Lacking any empathy, these spineless and soulless vultures seek out the weak, hunt for spoils and sport, and suckle on the gaping wounds of the innocent to feed their bloodlust. wrongly attributed to the psychology of snakes and lizards. It's a term we reserve for society's deadliest predators. Sociopaths, murderers, and psychopaths. And although they tend to hunt at night, our own cold-blooded killers come in two forms. Those you can spot, and those you cannot. This is part one of three of Cold-Blooded. George Edward Heath was an ordinary guy, doing an ordinary job, working long hours to feed his family. Born on the 23rd of May, 1910, George was raised in London, lived in London, and he would die in London. Age 34, being 5 foot 8 in height and 12 stone in weight. With neatly cropped hair, a square head with a stern face, chiseled features and a prominent cleft chin. George was an unremarkable man who, like so many of us, blended seamlessly into society, never making waves or leaving ripples. In 1934, 
while working as a waiter at the Woodlands Hotel in the former Kent town of Chislehurst. He met and fell in love with Winifred Ivy Neve, a waitress. And by September 1935, the two were married in a simple ceremony at Lewisham Registry Office. As expected, two children followed, with George Anthony, his namesake in 1936, and Arthur Barry in 1939, making their lives as happy as most other families. Described by Winifred as a restless man who always wanted to be on the move and was very fond of money and having plenty of life. Shortly before their marriage, he quit his poorly paid waitering job and joined Godfrey Davies Limited as a private hire driver, working irregular hours but for a reliable income. In all honesty, there's very little to report about the life of George Heath, the ordinary London taxi driver. He worked hard making an honest wage, but like many, he never owned his own cab. He was likeable, friendly and polite, being a man with many friends, a steady routine and no enemies. And although his vices were drinking, smoking and gambling, he never lit up in the car, he never drank on the job, and with as many wins as he had loses, betting on horses was just a hobby to busy his brain. By 1938, George may have thought that following the death of his parents that he'd faced his fair share of grief. But like so many millions across this city, and even beyond, the Grim Reaper was hoving into view. The Second World War was a time of upheaval and turmoil. As lives were lost, families were fractured, and this sprawling metropolis of the innocent became a skyborne target of destruction and death. In September 1939, with the younger, fitter men conscripted to be an endless wall of meat for the cannon fire, George was enlisted as a war reserve policeman patrolling the lawless streets of Victoria, later becoming a unit driver for the Royal Army Service Corps in Mitcham. Having been discharged in August, he was briefly a delivery driver for the Entertainment Service Association, as well as Hovis, the Bakers. Like so many, his life was in chaos. Only fate was not on his side. On the night of the 18th of September 1940, 11 days into an eight-month-long bombing campaign by the Luftwaffe, George was at home at 6 Sangora Road in Battersea, three streets from Clapham Junction Railway Station, a vital main line to the south, and a key strategic target for the Germans' devastating blitz. As a distant hum of bombers loomed overhead, although his wife and boys were safe elsewhere, 
George was not. And as he hunkered down, being encircled by a blast of landmines on Strathblane Road, the shockwaves of 20 kilo bombs on Plough Road, and a fiery wall of incendiaries exploding on Brussels Road, trapped in an epicenter of super hot flames and flying shrapnel. George survived, but only just. Committed to Longgrove, a psychiatric hospital in Epsom, for a full year with what we would term as PTSD. Although physically well, upon his discharge on the 21st of August 1941, George was a changed man. Gruff and lost, but still keen to work hard, to do his bit, and to provide for his family. So he soldiered on. In 1942, he moved his family to Hard's Cottage in Ewell, Surrey, as far away from the bombs as possible. And although his landlady described him as a model lodger who was devoted to his wife and children, Growing ever unhappy, they separated in autumn 1943. He returned to London to work as a cabbie, and in July 1944, he started seeing Violet Flessig, a married mother of two, while her husband served overseas. George Heath had survived so much. And yet it wasn't a bomb which would snuff out his life. As merely being the wrong man, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, fate put him in the path of a cold-blooded killer. The last time he saw his wife was on the 21st of July. He stayed the night. He kissed his boys. He gave her seven pounds on top of the four pounds he sent her every week. And then he did his shift, even though he'd been bitten on the arm by a dog. As a private hire cabbie, George worked antisocial hours from 7.30pm to 4am to pull in the nighttime crowd of the West End, driving a slew of faceless strangers to familiar and uncharted parts of the city. On Tuesday the 26th of September 1944, 11 days before his murder, George visited the garage of Harry Hawkins at Sunning Hill in Ascot to hire a car. Handing over a cheque for £14, roughly £750 today as security. That day, he drove away a nearly new grey Ford V8 four-door saloon with the registration plate RD8955. With no dents, being pristine clean, and with the handbrake in full working order, George was required to return it by Saturday the 7th of October at 9am, as it was booked up to drive passengers to Ascot races. George had every plan to keep that promise. As to him, the car was merely a means of making money to feed his family. But to his careless killer, 
It was the place where his prey would breathe his last breath. Friday the 6th of October was George's last day alive. Dressed in a grey flannel suit, a white shirt, brown brogues and a dark blue Melton overcoat, George undertook his pre-work routine of putting everything where it needed to be. A silver-plated pencil and a slightly leaky fountain pen in his breast pocket to fill in his cabbie's logbook a Swiss-made Bentima watch on his wrist with luminous figures as the city was still in blackout, a cigarette case with an odd sliding mechanism into his pocket and a black leather wallet containing a photo of his girlfriend Violet and his two boys. At 7pm, he met Violet at the Pineapple Pub where his autopsy would state that he ate a meal consisting mostly of potatoes. And as always, he drank no alcohol. Violet said his mood was good. He wasn't anxious or worried. And back at her flat, at 45 Cumberland Street in Westminster, he had a shave and agreed that at 8am, he'd take her and her two pals to Ascot races, giving him time, as promised, to return the car to Harry Hawkins. Starting at 9pm, he prowled for pickups in the West End. But finding the streets a little quiet, he swung by Godfrey Davies Limited by Victoria Station, the private hire firm where he had worked for almost a decade, and chatted to Arthur Green, his pal of 14 years, to see if there were any jobs he could swing his way. The pickings were slim, as a recent barrage of V-1 rockets had sent a second wave of civilians to leave the city behind. So with only £7 in his wallet, George returned twice at 10.30pm and 11.05pm. As always, George left his pal, wishing him all the best and saying, see you later. Only this time, he would not. The next four hours of George's life as a cabbie in that car are missing. We don't know where he went, where he travelled to, what he charged or who he carried, as his driver's logbook was never found. The night was bitterly cold and frustratingly wet. And with the wartime blackout still in force, meaning that not a single streetlight was on, The road was black, the pavement was in shadow, and even the dull yellow headlights of George's grey V8 Ford sedan had been narrowed to just two thin little slits. At 2.15am, just two hours before his shift was due to end, whilst driving from Hammersmith Broadway, he passed Cadby Hall on the Hammersmith Road and was flagged down by a young lady. Pulling up to the corner of Munden Road, as she peeped inside his cab, 
Although it was as dark as the blackest night, George could see she had brown curled hair, pale skin and red lips. And as a slim girl in a fashionable floral print dress, her perfume was a little heavy as she was bunged up with a cold. In a Welsh accent, she asked, Are you a taxi? Which was a logical question, as with no signs, no for hire light, and no passengers in the back seat. As owing to rationing, taxis were shared to save fuel and tyres. So unlike London's black cabs, private hires were hard to tell apart from other cars. George replied, Private hire, where do you want to go? At which she said, Wait a minute. And went back to the damp dark doorway, where a man, possibly her boyfriend, was sheltering from the wind and rain. For a minute, George waited. And although it irked him, he knew that beggars couldn't be choosers when the night was as quiet as this. So for a short while he waited, unwittingly making a fateful decision. A moment later, a stocky man with a boyish face was led from the shadows by the girl. Dressed in the green trousers and a khaki tunic of a US Army officer, as he said, take us to the top of King Street. A ride of just five minutes and ten shillings, it was clear that this was an American of European descent. As far as we know, George had no suspicions that his life was about to end. As this couple of lovebirds on a night out sat in the dark of his backseat, with the girl behind the passenger seat and the man behind him. George Heath was an ordinary man, doing a regular job, who was chosen at random. And yet he was just two miles from his murder, and barely 40 minutes from his death. As the taxi drove down King Street, with this usually busy shopping district dark and deserted, not a sight nor sound emanated from the thick row of shops, pubs and lodgings on either side. In the five minutes it took to drive its full length, nobody uttered a word until at the junction of Goldhawk Road, George gruffly broke the silence. Okay, well, we've passed King Street. Where do you want to go? The soldier uttered, It's further on. I don't mind paying more. And although, as a cabbie, George was used to passengers dithering, across the next ten minutes, as they drove a further one and a half miles, the man kept uttering, A bit further on. No, further still. Yeah, go on, a bit more. As if he was looking for somewhere or someone. When in fact, he was looking for a dark and isolated spot to kill a cabbie in cold blood. 
the passenger's indecision had riled George. But meeting the fare, he said nothing and carried on. At the Chiswick roundabout, George bluntly barked, This is the Great West Road. Where now? Only this was it. It was an odd place for a couple to depart. Being far from any houses and surrounded by a few empty factories which were guarded by no watchmen. But it was the perfect place for a killing. Just here, the soldier said. Being one of the last words that George would ever hear. As he pulled the taxi into an unnamed lay-by for the very last time. And as George applied the handbrake, his killer cocked his 45 caliber US Army pistol, which George didn't hear or react to. Instead, being a man of manners, whose shift was almost done, he reached over the passenger seat to unlock the left rear door for the lady. The time was 2.30 a.m. As the loud explosion rang in his ears, a wetness poured down his back and a sharp pain pierced his chest. Moaning loudly, as he slumped over the steering wheel, unaware that a hot bullet had torn into his back splitting his sixth rib and fracturing his right third rib as it exited his chest. A splintered lead ruptured his lung and severed his spinal cord. And as George lay motionless and silent, as he slowly drowned as his vital organs bled, he would live for another 15 minutes. But for every single second, he would be paralysed and at his killer's whim. Unable to fight or flee, with his head slumped on his chest, George heard the killer shout, Move over, or I'll give you another, as he was shoved across the passenger's seat and the car drove off at speed. The man was driving, and although he couldn't see, George would have felt as they crossed the River Thames at Kewbridge, sped down Kew Road and on to Twickenham, heading southwest. As with each mile they drove, he got weaker and colder and ever closer to death. But his killer didn't care. Check his pockets, the American soldier barked. And although George could barely breathe in short gasps, as his failing body echoed with an ever-increasing death rattle. Rather than helping him to live, like a vulture, the Welsh woman stole his watch, his wallet, his fountain pen and his pencil, his lighter and his cigarette case, pocketing four pounds in notes, some silver coins, a few petrol coupons, and then bidding the rest. To them, it was nothing but worthless tat. It didn't matter 
that everything was precious to him. His driving license, which gave him a job. His cabbie's logbook, which was a history of his career. A watch, which was given as a gift. A pen, which he had borrowed from his girlfriend. A letter written from his wife. And a treasured photo of his two young boys. Aged just five and eight. Who he would never see again, nor say goodbye to. As the Ford V8 was floored down Twickenham Bridge and onto Chertsey Road, it would have been then that 34-year-old George Edward Heath had died. A life snuffed out for the contents of his pockets. No prayer was said for the dead man, just a desire to dump him and flee. The car was driven at speed onto the Staines Road West, onto Kingston Road, and onto Stainash Parade to Knowles Green, 16 and a half miles from the Chiswick Roundabout. And as his slowly crawling body lay slumped in the passenger seat, it shimmied back and forth as the car turned onto an old dirt road. Amidst a dark canopy of trees, the car stopped. The engine, now as silent as George's heart. With the passenger's door opened to the cold night air, the man dragged him out by his armpits as the woman grabbed his legs. And with no ceremony or send-off, they rolled his body into a ditch like rubbish. Wiping his filthy blood off their hands with the handkerchief they had stolen from his overcoat, they both got in the car and fled, leaving his cold dead carcass out in the wild where the animals could feast. And as they struggled to ride the uneven grass and dirt track, although there was one witness, Reginald Turney of Stainash Crescent, who was sleeping in an Anderson shelter, and was awoken by the car's engine revving hard as it was driven on bumpy ground. He ignored it and fell asleep. The killer's journey back was a chance to dispose of the evidence. As the woman drove, the man examined the spoils of his killing, tossing the wallet out of the window and scattering the papers and photos along the Great West Road. Having found the bullet casing using the dead man's torch, he flung that too. And as the grey Ford V8 was driven back to Hammersmith, it was hidden among a slew of civilian and military vehicles in a car park at the back of the old Galmont Cinema. There they parked up, applied the now slightly dodgy handbrake, cleaned out any of the dead man's belongings and wiped down the car with a handkerchief inside and out so that, apart from a small dent on the near side front door and one on the passenger's dashboard, it looked like any other car. 
But did the killer run? No. Being callous and cold-blooded, with his bloodlust satisfied and needing to fill his belly, they went to the black and white cafe in Hammersmith Broadway to have tea, chips and egg. It didn't matter that the man was dead and lying in a ditch. As to his killer, being quarter to four in the morning, all he wanted to do was to get home, to bed and to sleep. And although he asked one of the cabbies in that cafe to drive them, using the dead man's money, and possibly asking one of his friends, who was unaware that his pal was dead, and soon that his wife, girlfriend and children would all be grieving, they declined. So as he walked back to the woman's flat on King Street, for sweet dreams and maybe some nookie, being just a short walk from where this vicious little odyssey had begun. It is said that this exchange between them took place. She said, He's dead, isn't he? He replied, Yeah. She said, That's cold-blooded murder then, isn't it? How could you do it? As he said, People in my profession haven't the time to think. The next morning, he sold off George's possessions for so few pounds that it didn't last them for the rest of the day. Everyone knew that they were nicked, but being wartime, even the most decent of people were happy to buy anything which was usually unavailable on the black market as long as no questions were asked. The fountain pen and the silver pencil he sold for eight shillings to a confectioner called Fleischmann. The cigarette case and lighter he sold to his old pal, Len Bexley, as repayment for a debt. The watch with the luminous figures he sold for five pounds to Maurice Levine, the barber. And having scattered the remains of his heinous crime among a sea of seemingly innocent people, he knew that he would be safe as no one would be likely to tell the police, or even to break to their friends, that they'd willingly purchase stolen goods. That day, to celebrate his good fortune, they went to the pub and got pissed. They headed to a cafe and had a fry-up. They went to the White City Stadium and placed a few bets on a dog. And then they headed to the cinema to see Christmas Holiday, a crime thriller starring Deanna Durbin and Gene Kelly. By the end of the day, every single penny he had made by killing George Heath was gone. His death was as meaningless as the rind on bacon, and his life was as disposable as the photographs he had tossed away. For George's family, their grief would last a lifetime. But for his killer, this cruel and callous act was just as quickly forgotten. It was a murder committed by a cold-blooded psychopath. But which one of them was the cruelest?
part two of three of Cold-Blooded continues next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Oh, oh, oh. oh there we go. Oh, oh, you're on the clock. Oh, dear. I'm going to have a swig of water. Got to have a swig. I don't think I'm going to have a cup of coffee. Mm. I'm going to be heading off to... Um, Oh, no, I've got to do an advert. I've got to record an advert in a second. Totally forgot about that. Oh, it's one of those... Gr- it's a crappy day out. Crappy, horrible, wet. It's all soggy out. It was really pissing it down last night. I'm going to walk up to the coffee shop, and my boots are going to be absolutely caked with mud, as always. Luckily, I'm a good customer, and I buy lots of stuff. So, And even though I try and clean my boots on the way out, on the way in, um, I try not to leave them everywhere by the time you you move away from your seat it's always really embarrassing because i i get up and i look down and go oh shit there's just cack ever not cack like poo but just like dried mud everywhere i was about to say dried blood everywhere but it's not it's dried mud so uh, yeah so you take your little hat off there we go hat is off hello how are you doing um yeah so oh lots to do lots to do um I've been trying to work out how to do this episode because it's because uh, it's a three-parter. Sometimes I, I write and edit them. I write and edit one, and then I write and edit the other. This time, I think, because I want to get into the the writing for the next one. I, I've I've written this one. I've recorded it. I'm not going to edit it until I've written the next three parts because there's a lot. There's a lot of versions that I I want to go through with this, and it's. I've, 
I just want to I just want to do the right version. I don't want, I want to be able to make sure that it's not edited and locked and all finished, all beautiful. And before I move on to the next one, I want to be able to make sure that if if I've recorded part two, part one, and I've written part two, then I can go back in and re-edit it. Anyway, that's boring. Who fucking cares? Oh, what else is going on? Uh, my eye is sore today. Yeah, life is great. Oh, just trying to get my eye, my dodgy eye used to uh life again it's i have i have a couple of days when it goes really nicely and i have good vision and everything's nice and comfortable and then it goes really shit so i should be back at hospital again soon oh joy so i've done this episode using one eye great uh, but i have been really busy uh, i've been just really busy recently like a lot going on so um lots of researching um stuff for the new year lots of good projects uh lots of exciting new stuff uh been pitching ideas for tv shows out there which has been good it's been exciting if you're if you're a regular listener to walk with me i kind of dive into it more on there um but yeah it's just interesting knowing what tv channels want and what they don't want and some ideas i pitch them and they and i think it's a really good idea and they go nah we don't like that and then and then i'll start talking about something else that i don't think is particularly great and they go oh we love that and i go right okay well i'll I'll focus on that but uh yeah no interesting really interesting so i've got 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 some interesting projects coming up um so yeah very good very good very good very good but uh all the kind of uh, some of the ideas it's not that they're not good ideas that tv channels do like it's just they have a very specific remit and some of the things that i think are good don't really work on television so but the good thing is um I, with all the, the if there's any that aren't tv workable the great thing is i can i can use them as a uh, uh, podcast ideas and there's some that i think would be absolutely great so yeah some that will never make it onto tv but you know you get to hear them only on the murder Mile podcast great news great news um uh, oh, did I say welcome to Extra Mile unscripted on the edited bit? I can't remember. I can't remember. Uh, how much battery have I got left? I've got 40% battery left. That's all right. That's not bad. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, welcome to Extra My brain is gone. It's gone. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm literally D-mob happy. I'm D-mob. It's 18th of November as we talk at the moment, and... Uh, I'm hoping to get all I'm hoping to get all these episodes done before December kicks in, then I can do uh lots more research. Oh, I just hit my arm against the uh table. I don't know why. It wasn't a deliberate thing. Um uh so let's dive in. Uh yeah, extra mile. Unscripted and unedited bit. Uh we're gonna do this is the waffly bit. Uh, this is the shite uh, and then we do some quiz questions and then we do some extra stuff that probably didn't make it into the episode uh, and then i'm gonna record the advert and then i'm gonna bugger off um not bugger off because that's you know that 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 implies me doing rude things um uh, let me just say a thank you to new patron su- supporters who are christine ramsden kimmy e and crystal so thank you to Christine Ramsden, Kimmy E and Crystal. Thank you for becoming patron supporters. Uh, obviously, you get lots of uh, exclusive goodies that no one else gets. Uh, they, there's uh, there's some things that I do share on social media, but the vast majority of it, all, all the special stuff I save for patrons. So uh, if you're a patron subscriber, enjoy those. I uh, also want to say thank you uh, to Phil79 and Bobstet. Um 
I apologise. You very kindly sent donations to uh, the supporter app. There's a link in the show notes. Um, again, because supporter, they when you do a donation, they don't. They obviously know about it, but they don't tell us about it. So, and I keep forgetting because supporters are a real pain in the ass to hunt down because I've got to go into Acast. I've got to remember under what tab it's in in Acast and you got to scroll down and then you got to find the little little button that says uh, open your supporter page and then you've got to go into supporter it's a real pain in the ass they, they've made it really difficult to find so uh, I, I always forget to check um, so thank you to Phil79 and Bobstead for your very kind donations I know you, you donated a while ago but uh, I've only just found them now and I'm going to try and remember to do that from now on I just I just keep forgetting if you do want to make a donation uh, you can do that by going to the Murder Mile website and in the shop is a, uh, a little thing called donate and that comes straight to me I get an email immediately your email is included and I can send you an email saying uh, thank you very much in supporter it's very good but they don't let you to put your let you put your email address in there which means i can't send you an email to say thank you which i like to do so uh you support if you if you want to do a donation but if you want to do it through the murder mile shop on the murder mile website that's built by me comes straight to me oh dear what is going on it's all a lot of work um uh, let's do some quiz questions. Um, I've started limiting these down to eight questions now, just because I, f- I feel that sometimes I um, there's too many questions, and it kind of uh, it ruins the kind of the extra stuff that we're going to dive into next next in the next. So I've I've limited to eight. Um, so if you uh, oh, see, I've no idea what my brain's doing today. I'm all over the shop, just lost, just lost. Oh, I, fa- I fancy treating myself to something nice today like a really nice treat maybe i might have a beer um let's do the quiz questions there's eight so uh we'll do answers very shortly so question number one what was george's middle name question number two where did he meet his wife and what was he doing when he met his wife question number three what was his wife's name Question number four, what bakery did he briefly work for? Bakeries. Mm. Question number five, what was the name of the cottage where he moved his family to? Question number six, what had attacked George on the day that he last saw his wife? Did that make sense? What attacked George on the day he last saw his wife? Question number seven, what was the name of the pub where he met Violet the night before? And question number eight, what did he mostly eat for dinner the night of his death? This week, I shall be mostly eating. Uh, so let's dive into some extra stuff and then we'll do the answers to those very shortly. Um, the uh, place where the shooting took place, that took me uh, a good solid morning to find that. Because even though this is based on uh, the police records, it's not there. I was expecting to find a uh, crime scene photos and to, to show you exactly where the shooting was, but it's not there. Uh, where the body was dumped, that was recorded, although I had to go searching for that myself. The the place where the shooting was wasn't. So um, what I ended up doing, we, we'll, we'll actually let's go to this now. We'll, we'll do the George stuff in a bit. Uh, here we go. So uh, How do we know exactly where the shooting happened uh, and what time it happened? Uh, well, there was 
a couple of witnesses and they were kind of key to this so even though uh, where the shooting happened is uh it's currently where the the chiswick flyover is so if you go there now there's a big uh it's part of the great west road and it's a big flyover that goes over the chiswick roundabout that originally wasn't there um back in the 1940s that's a much later addition um and even though there's not many houses around there, and it's mostly in that area, it was mostly factories. Um, there were a couple of witnesses who were doing the night shift, so the night the night watchmen were there. Um, so William Hollis was a gateman and night watchman at H- Hudson Essex Motors uh, on the Great West Road in Chiswick. Um, what I did was I uh, tracked down where, even though it's not in the police file, I tracked down where hudson essex motors was on the great west road exactly where that was there's another guy shortly and i pinpointed where they were so he said he was just doing his job uh he started about 8 30 a.m um he just punched the clock at the back of the premises uh between great west west great west road and the gun and gunnersbury avenue um and he said, just as I turned away from the clock, I heard the sound of a gunshot. It appeared to come from the direction of the London end of the bypass. I am an old soldier and have been a musketry instructor. It sounded to me to be the report of a heavy revolver and fired in a confined space. It had a muffled sound. So so there you go. That is, that is a pretty good witness statement. We, I was able to track down exactly where the, the uh, factory was and, you know, He's a soldier, he's a musketry instructor. He worked out that it was a revolver uh, and that it was in a confined space. Um, the shooting was also heard by uh, a gentleman called William Collins and Lawrence Gearson, who was employed at Henley's nearby. Henley's was a factory nearby. Uh, they actually said that they thought the shot was around 2.45am. Uh, but because... Um, don't forget this is an era where we're still in an era where not a lot of people are still wearing watches and and um, things like that so uh, with William Hollis who was the gatekeeper at Hudson's because he just clocked on he said he clocked on he said just as I turned away from the clock I heard the sound of gunshot because we've got his time card that says it was 2.30 a.m bingo we're going to go with that one Uh, I think it's less likely that it was nearer uh, 245 which is what the other guy says uh, they were they said they were in the canteen playing cards at the time it was a quiet night and they heard a distinct pop but thought nothing more of it so you can see why i've picked one witness statement who was like it was like it was it was definitely a gun it was a roll a revolver it was within a confined space i'm a military person i understand guns i just clocked on i just looked at my time card it was half past two <laughs> do you know it, it it makes sense why you'd use that witness statement as opposed to two guys who were just sitting down playing cards on a boring night not looking at their watch for any reason and they heard what they called a distinct pop but thought nothing more of it so um so yeah that's that's why we know so i was able to i was able to pin it down also their witness statements as well the uh we i, I need to be really careful because in the uh next week's episode w- w- it's very much focused on the killer and then the week after that we focus on on the girl the welsh girl who was there so they get an episode each um but obviously they gave statements as well so i was able to use a lot of the information of uh, where they drove what time they were driving weirdly their timings are all over the shop they thought that they, they did this around one o'clock in the morning so which is why you should never really trust witness names it's like it's like even now i don't even know what time it is now what time is it now it's two o'clock 
two in the afternoon i wouldn't have known that i, I thought it was about half 11 oh anyway the day is um it is isn't it the day is uh so let's um let's do some things about george george uh, uh, online you will see references to this called the cleft chin murder i really hate that it really winds me up whoopie dooey got a cleft chin therefore we have to call it the cleft chin murder and because one journalist decided to pick up on it therefore everyone decided to do it because they're fucking lazy um originally this this was called the black finger murder because george had his um a uh, uh, leaky fountain pen that he'd fought borrowed off violet his girlfriend and it leaked everywhere so when they found him they found um no i mean we'll dive into this next week uh they found no wallet on him no id no nothing but his finger his fingers um his right hand fingers were black because of the found pens. hence they called it the uh black finger murders uh, journalists they're really fucking lazy um so yeah so we don't really know a lot about george even in the police files there really wasn't much in there i've i've basically given you as much as i can and uh had to find a lot of other details as well so uh yeah uh, born and bred in london uh we don't really know about his family we don't know about his parents we know that his mum and dad died uh in and around 1938 or just prior we don't know whether he had any brothers and sisters they're not listed in in the police file either um there's some references online to him having a, a criminal record i couldn't find any criminal record for him i couldn't find any references to him being arrested for anything prior um some people online seem to be suggesting that he was a um uh that he had debts uh owing to gambling again i can't see anything referencing in there to him having debts so uh everything that i've put in here is just the facts that we know absolutely con concurrent concurrently that's the wrong word oh, my brain i could do with a cake today it's really annoying because the bakery the good bakery will be shut by the time i get there so uh maybe maybe i might have a beer maybe i'll treat myself later on that might take the pain away from my eye my eye really hurts today really hurt. i think i'm gonna have some more drugs in a bit not not good drugs not the not the quality shove it into your veins drugs this will just be um uh ibuprofen a, a mix of ibuprofen and paracetamol that's the new thing i learned recently is that when people go oh god oh i've got pain i need to take my painkillers uh, i need to take uh, ibuprofen or paracetamol and they either take one or the other but i've i've found out through experiment and also checking a uh, proper sources as well you know uh, medical sources um but it's not how many drugs you take it's the combination because um each like paracetamol and aspirin and uh um ibuprofen are all very different they do different things and they affect different people in different ways uh therefore i take i take one paracetamol and one ibuprofen and that seems to do that seems to do the do the job it seems to hit the hit the spot exactly except last week when i was in starbucks and uh, my eye was really hurting so I, I took my prescribed amount of ibuprofen and paracetamol uh yeah uh, and then um i looked down and realized that uh 
it wasn't the regular paracetamol. It was it was the little red bennies, as I call them, the paracetamol, the uh, ibuprofen express. And I'd taken two of those, which is fine, but you you meant to take one of those or two of the regular paracetamol and then one of the paracetamol. Um, and then I started to feel really weird. And I thought, oh, fuck, I haven't just overdosed. I think I, think I was all right. I just had to sit there for a little bit. I'd taken it with caffeine as well, which I don't think you're really meant to do is... Uh, and also, I think I was sitting slightly cross-legged, so I think I did that thing as well. Do you know when you sit, you sit in, and your your ass, you've kind of, you know where your ass is. Uh, oh, I, I have to say this: we we've, we've probably got Tory politicians who listen to this podcast, and they don't know their ass from their elbow. You're welcome. Um, do you know when you're sitting on your ass, and sometimes you're sitting on that vein or artery that's on your ass, uh, on the bony bit, and then suddenly your leg goes dead, and you go really weird. I think that could have happened as well. So uh, yeah. It was weird sitting in Costa Coffee and a Starbucks, and uh, it's irrelevant which fucking coffee shop it was. Um, and going really weird and thinking, "Oh God, I'm not going to die, am I?" And then thinking, "Will anyone in here really care?" Like there was loads of people around. And I just thought, "No one's going to give a shit, are they?" They really won't give a, a flying f about me, me carking it. Um, so let's do this. Uh, yes, okay. Um, We'll do some uh, George stuff. Uh, as as mentioned, he, he'd worked for about 10 years on and off for Godfrey Davies, which is based on Eccleston Street, SW1, just by Victoria Station. Uh, he was referred to as a chauffeur, but he was also kind of a private hire driver. It's basically the same thing. So he was there from 1934 to 39. Then there was that brief period where he was a war reserve policeman. Because obviously uh, when war broke out, a lot of the policemen who were fit and young were sent overseas to fight. So therefore, a lot of old policemen had to come back. But also anyone who could be a policeman. He's kind of 30s, so he's not being called up to fight just yet. But he will be. Um, therefore, uh, he, he was serving in and around Victoria and Sloan Square. Um, he did this for about almost a year, not quite a year. Uh, then he was called up. Uh, spring of 1940 to August 1940, he joined the Royal Army Service Corps as a driver, and then he was attached to a unit in Mitcham, um, uh, only to be ditched, discharged on the 21st of August 1940, as his unit wasn't needed anymore. It's a real weird period in time when, obviously, war breaks out, so everything erupts, suddenly you've got loads of conscription going overseas, you've got people who weren't in one job now being moved to another job and because things are changing so fast it's hard for people to know where to be there's no consistency it's not like you just went into a factory and started making munitions you get moved around a lot that is kind of your job um uh as mentioned uh i managed to track down where the bombing was so he was uh he was in his home at 6 Sangers Road in Clapham. Uh, it's actually Battersea, really. Uh, just by Clapham Junction. Um, it's still there today. The building's still there. And when I looked at the, kind of the maps in and around the area, because in the police report, they just said he had a period of sickness. So I had to really dive into where he was. I found out that his home had been bombed. Um, it, 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 was, it wasn't badly damaged, but it was enough that although he wasn't physically damaged in a bad way you know he had uh he had some cuts and burns and things like that he was sent off to long grove hospital in epsom which they described as a mental hospital um he was in there for almost a year so he was clearly in a bad way um 
He left the hospital on the 25th of August 1941 and then came to uh, then he moved to his present address, which is one of the quiz questions. Uh, he got a couple of jobs um, again as a driver. Do you know, he's doing as many kind of driving jobs as he can do, because that's what he does for a living. Uh, we don't really know what really changed about him uh, after the bombing. We know that he suffered with shock and nerves after that, but it, I think he's just one of those guys who was quite, you know, like 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 mo- most men, and especially men in that era, they won't really talk about their problems. So it's amazing that he actually he must have been in a bad way to go to hospital, but we don't know what happened to him after that. Uh, August nine, uh, he separated from his wife. August nineteen forty three. Then he met Violet Flessig, who was the wife of Arthur Flessig, who was serving in the British Army. She lived at uh, 45 Cumberland Street in Westminster and she was the mother of two children. Uh, and she'd known George for about three months. She referred to him just as a friend, but they, because they, him and his wife were separated, they were clearly an item. Um, and because of her, we, we know about the items that were in his pocket as well. So uh, one of them, Exhibit 10, was a an Atlas fountain pen, uh, which she had loaned him. Uh, and he carried that in his outside breast pocket. Uh, exhibit 11 was a chromium silver-plated propelling pencil. These were all used because he needed to fill in his uh, his taxi driver's logbook. Um, he had his leather wallet. That was Exhibit 1, uh, inside of which was a photo of Violet and his children. Uh, there was a letter from his wife as well. He seemed to be getting on quite well with his wife, even though they'd separated. It, it seemed to be quite amicable. He was working as hard as he could. He would give her money to look after the kids and you know as much as he could he'd give her more money when he needed to and even um because sometimes he struggled you know maintaining the job she would loan him money as well so uh you know it's it seems it it seems like they they just kind of drifted apart um as mentioned uh he got the car on the 26th of september 1944 from harry hawkins a private hire proprietor so harry had five cars um this isn't a dodgy deal that he's doing he's not renting a car and then using it as a minicab this is a private hire guy who rents out his cars to guys who want to be private hire drivers so this is all all above board Uh, it was a gray ford uh, v8 saloon um uh, george George coughed Um, George gave him a cheque for £14 of security uh, with a plan to return on Saturday the 4th of October at 9am as it was fully booked to be used for Ascot races so um, the car was meant to go out then but also Violet, his girlfriend was coming back for the races as well so it's race day weekend it was a a key moment for everyone Um, I think that's it we don't really know a lot about his movements that night. He's a taxi driver. He moves around. If if the logbook was thrown out of the window by the killer himself, um, so we, uh, as far as I know, we don't know where that is. That was never found. But uh, what George would have done is every time he had a pickup, or like like taxi drivers today, obviously they don't need to do it because it's all automated. But back then, you know, you, he would have said uh, picked up couple time outside Cadby Hall. And then at the end of the end of the um, journey, he would have written, "Okay, um, um, drove them to Chiswick roundabout, arrived two thirty. Obviously, he wouldn't have written, "Got shot dead," because that wouldn't have made sense. Um, so yeah, 
Uh, so we 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 don't know about his timings at night. We know bits and pieces when he went to see friends, and we only really know about the final part because he um because he got shot. So I think that's it. I don't want to tell you too much because um we got two more episodes to go, and I haven't written them yet. So I don't want to ruin it. So let's do the quiz questions, and then I can record this advert uh, for which I can make about four pence. Uh, and then I can F-R-O to the coffee shop, and I might have a little cake there. They do good cakes. They do good bacon sandwiches as well. Um, so let's let's do this. Um, so question number one, what was George's middle name? It was Edward. Question number two, where did he meet his wife, and what was he doing when he met his wife? Ooh, uh, he was a waiter at the Woodlands Hotel in Chislehurst. Question number three, what was his wife's name? It was Winifred. Question number four, what bakery did he work for? It was Hovis. Question number five, what was the name of the cottage where he moved his family to? It was called Hard's Cottage. It's still there today. Uh, question number six, what had attacked George on the day he last saw his wife? Uh, he was bitten on the arm by a dog. Question number seven, what was the name of the pub where he met Violet the night before? It was called The Pineapple. I think the pub has changed name, but it's still there. Uh, it's down in Lambeth. And question number eight, uh, oh, it's on Hercules Road, if I remember correctly. Uh, and question number eight, what did he mostly eat for dinner the night the night of his murder? potatoes and although it may seem like we've we've done this a couple of times in, in episodes where um the, the pathologist says uh they mostly eat potatoes or in the case of uh the first victim of the blackout ripper it was mostly beetroot if i remember correctly uh, it's not because they're eating a whole meal of beetroot it's just that some things break down in, in your stomach faster than others and, and things that are quite starchy like potatoes tend to take a long time to to break down uh, and beetroot as well obviously because beetroot's a bright color as well so you can really really see it when it's in your thingy but things like bread bread will just go really fast there we go that's it folks i think that's that sells done hope you enjoyed that episode if you can indeed enjoy an episode about a, um, a man's long and lingering death um when i was researching this uh, when i was reading about how long it took him to die that was when i thought this i'm just going to make this about george i'm going to make the whole episode about george i'm going to make the whole all of it about his life leading up to that moment and then we're going to live with him throughout that bit when he was when he's uh when he's dying in the car which i thought was absolutely tragic and him being dead being dumped and then his callous killers at the end going off and uh having fun and going to a cafe and all that afterwards so um yeah horrible so we'll be back next week um thank you for enjoying the show if you enjoy the show i don't know whether you are enjoying the show maybe you think it's shit i don't know thank you for listening to the show maybe you're not listening to the show maybe you just have it on the background and you're like who is this turd maybe that's it i don't know anyway that's me done have yourself a good week folks stay safe be good i'm off to have a whittle uh lots of love everyone be good bye bye small details are big surfaces Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer. Softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.